How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. Today, we are welcoming the amazing Andrew Radarski, who, for me, I got my introduction to him through one of my favorite movies of all time, Hudson Hawk. But he's also Leatherface, the recent remakes of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the beginning. Uh, the program, Batman Returns, uh, Street Fighter, just an overall bodybuilder, professional wrestler, stuntman. Like you, you are one incredible guy. And so it's fortunate to have you on here today, Andrew. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you very much. Now, I know the last year has been kind of crazy for everyone, but for 2020, how would you sum that up in terms of your the effect it had on your physical and mental well-being, especially in your industry uh, that's completely got shut down? Well, you know, it didn't really affect me that dramatically. I, uh, I removed myself from, quote, Hollywood uh, some time ago. I live uh, a somewhat isolated existence up in the mountains on the top of a mountain with uh, – Many species, as uh, humans being uh, on the on the you know not so important, not so uh, not so many of them on the scale, and uh, I do the same things that I, I did anyway. And if I need to go down into the city for something, I do. Uh, but kinda, I stay up on the mountain. I like that. You've got the beard for it too. I, uh, it's quite uh, intimidating. <laughs> That's why I grow it to intimidate people. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, uh, one it, of the it cool- doesn't work so much against the, against the bears and the mountain lions, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it gets a little more intimidating and it, it, it goes in my favor one of these days. Have you always like growing up? Were you always an outdoor person, like in the wilderness, or is this something where the industry got so jaded and filled with bullshit that you kind of wanted to get away from it? Well, I lived at the beach uh, my first twenty some years out here in California, and uh, then it got kind of shitty at the beach for a lot of reasons, and um, living at the beach wasn't. Uh, the thing anymore so I checked out the mountains and uh, love the mountains just as much as I love the beach but it's a lot cleaner and a lot uh, it's easier living up there for me less uh, nonsense and less people and less politics yeah no I I hear you I wish and you and I joked before we jumped on here a couple hours ago but the social media and technology I find that yeah it's a it's a necessary evil because you do have to communicate or see family, friends, or you have to do work calls and stuff like that. But I wish it went back when I was younger, like 1990s, where it's just like 
so like pedestrian. It's like the kitchen phone in the kitchen will only go eight feet. Now we have all this stuff in our pockets, and it just it kind of drives me mad. And uh, I'm glad to see you kind of looking at it the same way because it's definitely ruined a lot of people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, John. I think a lot of the things going on are designed to ruin a lot of people's lives these days. You know, uh, unfortunately, it, uh, it's a you. mess that uh, we're in right now. Yeah, I mentioned Hudson Hawk, and I do want to talk about the character because it's the it's so you play Butterfinger, obviously, and it's whoever whoever hasn't seen this movie, it's Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, uh, just David Caruso, like just incredibly weird, eccentric, but your character. Like, it, for whatever reason, it caught me off guard because you, you're obviously this a real-life intimidated guy, big guy, but your character, yeah, he's physically imposing, but he comes off as so, like, kind of dumb, but, like, effect, like very – he's just very relatable. And so when you do a movie like that, obviously it was your big break. Beautifully your, naive. Right. How much control over that character did you have to make it your own? <laughs> I had a lot of – a lot of control over that. I mean, there was not a lot of control during the filming of the movie. But one thing that became clear to me and uh, some of the other cast members, I was particularly close to Don Harvey at the time. And um, it was my first film ever. And uh, we were in New York and we were in Italy, all over Italy. And we were in Hungary. London and uh, and there became a you know he has a master in fine arts from Yale and uh, I was completely green and uh, the changes on that movie even while we were overseas on location just would come fast and furious every day there'd be weeks off where we would be paid to hold while they tried to reassess and uh, control the inner political workings of that film behind the scenes. And um, it wasn't going to happen. It was kind of like an out-of-control train. But what we realized as performers were funny as money and whatever is clever. And, uh, you know, it's all crafty bullshit. So yeah. you reach into your pocket, you get as crafty as you can, your best handful of crafty bullshit. You throw your best crafty bullshit as well and straight as you can. If your crafty bullshit flies straight and sticks to the wall, then damn, don't you throw some good crafty bullshit. Put your name on it. And, uh, you know, it was very creative uh, and fulfilling that way because it was the challenge, you know, was to get the laughs and, uh, they say I did pretty good uh, doing that. So yeah, no, that movie I'm, is. I'm grateful so... for the the people that mentored me on that my first film and uh, allowed me to steal all the all the laughs in that movie. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the level of talent, professionalism, and experience of the rest of my cast and crew because uh, they were really there for me, uh, supportive and. Uh, and nurturing so uh it was it was a great environment for me i love uh, that. my first film and it was also to date the most expensive hollywood production that hollywood had ever 
you know, endeavored to create. And uh, it was under a lot of fire and took a lot of heat for that. And, um, you know, it's not, I was traveling around Europe on the Concord and staying in five star hotels and stealing all the laughs from Bruce Willis. So it wasn't a horrible time in my life. Quite a way to jump right in, you know, trial by fire. Right. I'm sure uh, I would never have worked again if I had sucked. I'll no, still I... never work for Joel Silver again, which is a, is a shame. But, uh, you know, you, you win some, you lose some along the way to victory. Right. Now, how do you, you were bodybuilding and you're doing all this stuff. How did you kind of get into the the Hollywood scene? Like, how does someone find you to cast you in that role? Well, I was uh, kind of like a dinosaur back in those days. I was a bodybuilding phenomenon. I was a freak way ahead of my time and the curve. And uh, it had been a long time since Arnold was bodybuilding and bodybuilding was back underground and it was not popular or mainstream at all. Uh, I did it for personal reasons. You know, it was like uh, constructive therapy. Yep. And, um, Eventually, uh, you know, it became something. It wasn't for other people. You know, the reason I did it was to heal myself and uh, to make something, you know, better of myself. And uh, people would break their neck, though, everywhere I went. Like, they were like, I was a walking dinosaur. And uh, my attitude then was, you know, I don't really care what your opinion is of what I do, you know, because... I won't have a high opinion of your lazy, slovenly ass either. But, um, you know, whether they loved me or hated me, I thought, wow, it must sure be fucking fascinating, though, that everybody breaks your fucking neck everywhere I fucking go. Just right. Line after line, without exception. And I thought, you know, I, I need somebody to throw me a nickel every time somebody breaks their neck and stares at me with utter fascination. Love me or hate me, you know, look at you fucking stare at me as long as you need to get a good look. Maybe it'll inspire you. Maybe it'll show you your own fucking, you know, uh, limitations. Uh, you know, maybe it'll get your ego uh, to get up off your ass and do something. Who cares? I didn't care. You know, like, good for you. I'm glad I could do that for you. Whatever it was, I didn't do it for anybody except myself in the first place. But it was such a phenomenon that I said, how do I get a nickel for everybody who stares at me? And somebody said, you know, I guess, you know, you should go to Hollywood and be a movie star. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just go to Hollywood and be a movie star. <laughs> hmm. You know, I was like, well, I could kick Arnold's ass and probably fuck his girlfriend. So why don't I go to Hollywood, take his jobs? And literally that was uh, my maybe uh, too many afternoons watching pro wrestling attitude growing up but uh now i saw it and, uh, that's how it was how worked out already right. for the program is your character steve how close are you to that character in real life uh to steve latimer yeah is there anything I mean, about in that real character? Life, in real life that performance is part of my life now how much was I like that character at the time? I mean, I drew inspiration from the arts. It was supposed to be a, uh, you know, a, 
a lesson against using steroids, you know, uh, make right. it look horrible and taboo. Unfortunately, my charisma and enthusiasm kind of turned it into a, uh, hey, I need to get some of that juice fucking movie. And, um, you know, hey, we have bigger, stronger, faster Americans. And, uh, you know, the alpha males in America are in much better shape after that movie became into existence in the, you know, popular lexicon than before. So, uh, but do I have roid rage issues? Have I ever been out of control like that guy? No, it was a performance. Um, I often say if I acted the way I acted in a lot of my performances, it would be like the Daffy Duck cartoon, this next trick I can only do once, you know. Right. Uh, I wouldn't get away with anything like I do in the movies for a hot minute in the real world. One of uh, the, so, uh, the interesting things for Batman Returns. I don't, I don't, I don't day rape chicks in fits of roid rage. Right. <laughs> or kill people in an old abandoned house in the South. Yeah, I don't cry when I uh, have something, uh, you know, an obstacle that presents itself. When the interesting thing about Batman Returns, you play a character that's not attacking people. However, I will say this before I move on about the program. The heart and the tenacity and the hard work, his work ethic, that was all 100% me. And preparing for that role behind the scenes, that was 100% me. Um, being my best and ensuring that uh, the shoot dates coordinated with when I was going to look good if I had to take off my shirt and so that my body would match certain requirements the way I you know, saw them for the film in different scenes to help tell the story. I, I used a lot of my bodybuilding experience and diet experience, you know, uh, just uh, ridiculous training ethic. Uh, that was a lot like me. I was not only training after practice, I was training after work, shooting a movie, and then going to the gym at night. You know, on top of that, it was uh, it was twenty four hours a day hard work for me. I love on that. the battle returns, which actually happened earlier than the program, but one year earlier. So, so one of the cool things about Batman Returns is that you got to play a character that showcased your actual acting ability too, as opposed to just playing this menacing good or bad guy. I thought that was really cool. Thanks. The thing about Batman Returns is that was another beleaguered production that went on for seven or nine months. And uh, a lot of people got fired as they changed directions uh, on the film and his egos clashed and demanded more screen time for their characters and their clients. And uh, originally there was a ton of stuff between me and Michelle Pfeiffer that would have really made what you say true more about showing uh, the performance and the craft that was originally intended to be part of the film. But it turned into the bat, the cat, the penguin. And if you weren't one of those things, you'd get the fuck on and get out of the movie. And uh, I survived all the cuts. I mean, I didn't get fired. Uh, David Wayans got fired. A lot of people were getting dropped uh, every single day I went to work. And uh, 
then they'd have a couple of days off unexpectedly and fire some more people. And, uh, you know, the good news is, uh, the bad news is, Tim, Tim Burton would tell me is, uh, you know, you're still, you're still in the movie, you know, these people are, but the bad news is like these five pages of, uh, really witty S&M bondage kind of, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer confrontation stuff after we throw her out the window, all that shit that was in there is gone. And I'm like, oh man, that was right. my whole my whole fucking character. It turns out now, you know, I'm more like background dressing, but um, you know, it's cool. It was uh, a lot more to the experience that people will ever know, and um, right. it was Michelle Pfeiffer's ego really, and. Uh, time she's very insecure completely neurotic and um she was uh she was a strange bird tell you that and um you know she uh she wanted more close-up catwoman shit and nothing to do with the scenes that were written uh, with her and i so she had them taken out of the film and um you know, in the end, you get to see me do a little bit of my Christopher Walken impression and uh, stand around like furniture. But I'm still always going to be proud that I, I was in that film. And uh, there was a lot more experience and a lot more was shared with the people involved that I, I can never forget or regret. Right. So uh, thank you for the compliment. I, I only wish that people could have seen the, the performance that I, that I had for that film. Right. One of the, uh, from one production to another that I've heard and read some insane uh, Street Fighter, your character, Zangief, uh, easily one of the best play- players in that in that actual video game series from Capcom. But half the stories I read, I don't want to believe, and half I do, was how crazy was the filming of that? It, it wasn't fun for you, at least, in between the, the filming of the takes and all Hell that. Hell yeah. I mean, there was nothing that could uh, could not have me have fun at that point in my life. I mean, I was 24. I'd been in film since I was 20. Uh, things were going well. Um, traveling around the world again, first class. Had a six spot in uh, Queensland, Surface Paradise, like 35th floor of this uh, condominium. And I realized what they were paying for the Marriott at Surfers. I was like, you know, we're going to be here for two months. I can just, you know, save the production a ton of money and just get this $10,000 a month uh, <laughs> condo. Right. And so I was living life with a, a mohawk. <laughs> that was the first white guy with a mohawk, uh, you know, doing the Mr. T look yep. with a pair of uh, Ray-Ban mirrored aviators, you know, just uh, uh, with a physique walking around like uh, completely. It wasn't, you know, it might sound something like, you know, you see every day, but it was not something anybody had ever seen any day. And, uh, it was a good time. Everybody treated me well everywhere I went. I have adventures and stories. You know, it was hard working with Van Damme. Van Damme was, right. you know, coked out of his fucking mind to the point where, you know, the way I always saw it was 
And he was very intimidated by me, but he was playing this role of this movie star that he created. He's really just uh, John, you know, Van Barenberg. And he didn't really know how to act with another layer on top of that. He was putting on his best performance every day, being Jean-Claude Van Damme for the people that he was making promises that he couldn't deliver for. And, um, I was about 265 pounds and in shape and that was probably 100 pounds of muscle more than he had and uh, he was very intimidated by that and would say stupid things to me like someone who was like wow you're a really big guy how'd you get this job who who hire you what do you do wow you're a really big guy you're not fat. You're just huge. Wow. Uh, how much you weigh? Oh, and I was just like, it'll be all right, John Paul. And uh, a lot of people, you know, pointed out before I had to do scenes with him, you know, and his behavior showed me a lot uh, about what was going on. Uh, it was it was a hot mess. Uh, I knew that I'd have to be crafty. I'd bring things. I mean, there was like Rashad Seth, who's a, uh, a legitimate actor at that point, and um, he he said he wanted. He came back from uh, working with Van Dam one day and said he wanted all the scenes cut out of the movie because <laughs> he felt like he was drugged down to Van Dam's level. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, I, uh, I, I, I heeded that warning and made sure that, you know, I had some funny stuff going in to the scenes I did with him. You know, the scene at the end where I give him the sideways thumbs up. I, I had done that earlier and made it a running joke, you know, and the thing with Ryu and Ken turning my thumb up and, you know, that was just some some good running, you know, humor and sight gag. And uh, so I sent it to Van Damme at the end when he just has that dumb look on his face and even he knew what to do. And I explained it to him and the fact that it was, you know, that it was clever and it was funny right away. Like right. the look on his face, like somebody had just given him the keys to the universe. Like, oh my, oh, oh my God, yeah, we're going to do that. Let's do that. And I'm like, so, you know, I refuse to suck just because the guy next to me sucks. I'll carry him if I have to. Uh, and that's part of an ensemble cast. Um, it's it's cool. It's how- just part of the way I view my my craft. I, I don't do movies to, to suck or not to give them something they can use that's going to work. It's that's it's really cool how you're me. able you're able but to. Van Damme would just go walk right through the fucking thing with nothing and catch a check and not give a shit. So I had to try harder than that, that's for sure. But it worked out. I don't mind, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the awesome. answers are in the work. Funny's money and whatever's clever. So you gotta find your best shit. Like I said, another case. It's interesting how you're able to kind of bring these nuances to your character. And it's it's kind of cool hearing you talk about these because when you watch these movies, especially Street Fighter, it's like yeah, there's this imposing, intimidating guy that has got this crazy backstory for the video game, but 
it's like there's something different with it because it's you kind of finding the absurdity in the situation you're in, but making yeah. it believable and fun. It's really cool. Well, it's like a movie might be destined to suck and it might be on a, it might be going to, maybe it's going to sink, but I didn't come there to join a sinking ship. Right. I don't suck. And when I'm hired, I'm going to perform my character to its ultimate potential and make it the best it can fucking be by having me in the driver's seat and bringing that that view right um so if everything about the movie is gonna suck i'm still not there to suck i won't let it make me suck that would be a problem but it's not a problem for me if i do my job and shine if i can bring you know the ship up a little bit great if i can't save the sinking ship well you know what my character was never meant to fucking support the weight of the whole ship, but you know, I'll definitely do what I can to turn a duck into a fucking rose. And uh, yeah. at least with what I can do, anything I can do, uh, I'll do, I'll put what I do on it to the best of my ability. And I won't walk away until the best that I have is on the floor and can. One of the uh, my favorite. You've done a ton of football movies, but one of my favorite sports movies, again for its absurdity and over the top action, the way it was filmed was Any Given Sunday. And I've always wondered. Obviously, your character's great. I, it's believable, and you work with Lawrence Taylor and all these guys. But during that piece for Inches speech with Al Pacino, is it, when you hear an actor and you know the lines are coming and you know it's a movie, but when you hear a speech like that. Or you get motivated when you hear stuff like that? Oh, dude. Um, I was uh, I was really given a lot of uh, leash by Oliver Stone as far as creating my character and uh, just don't suck. Like, literally, that would be Oliver's direction. And, uh, hey, I'm all for that because I don't suck. And he didn't want to hear that uh, specifically, but that's how it is. And um, I made a few mistakes, pissed him off a lot fewer than other people. Oliver's an exacting guy, you know, and uh, without Pacino, there was a lot more going on. He was feeding off of the incredible amount of testosterone on the set. And uh, up in it, I was doing some of that stuff. Uh, you know, some of my dialogue and some of my scenes, I'd pull off of the walls where it was written, these Lombardi quotes and stuff. And uh, a lot of that was turned into dialogue for Al Pacino stuff. You know, use your environment. It's one of the first rules of filmmaking or acting. And, um, you know, he, uh, that scene, it was, it was too hype. It was, the room was was exploding literally you know before Al could get his you know like we were exploding and had to sit on it before he started his mistake yeah, at one point it was so too much he, had, he, he called me by name he's like Andrew <laughs> I'm like oh shit one of the I'm glad you brought up the idea the testosterone of Philby at a given Sunday because I pictured you, Lawrence Taylor, all these alpha males just 
created chaos, playing football and doing your thing. And an interview you did before, which I found amazing, is that they were trying out the different quarterbacks. You said that P. Diddy actually tried to come, or came out to be a quarterback. With the he was hired. Fox. He had the wow. job. Wow. Tim Fox was a, was a, uh, a Hail Mary that was suggested and thrown at Oliver on location as the decision was being made to fire P. Diddy because uh, he threw like a girl, quote. And he did. And, um, you know, the rest is history for Jamie Foxx. He used uh, an incredible opportunity to really – Jamie really ran with the ball and that. He really understood what it was like working with Oliver and the opportunity. And, um, you know, well, uh, again, without Pacino and the, uh, <laughs> the amount of testosterone going on, at the end, I just I wanted to thank Al. And I said, Al, in the beginning, Oliver Stone had me in his office and said, you know, I just want to know if you blew your load or if you can do this again. And I'm like, more crazy football playing maniac, you know, you can't uh, – possibly on steroids that you can't fucking buy for the money. And he's like, okay, good, great. And he's all happy. And uh, Al Pacino came up the elevator and walked into Oliver's office. I was about to leave, and Oliver was showing me out. And uh, he said, ow, ow, oh. And they gave each other a hug. And he said, I just want you to meet this kid. You're going to love working with his name's Andrew Bernarski, and he's an amazing actor. You're going to love him. And I was just like, What? What? And I'm like, wow. I'm like, yeah, he's killing me. I'm like, ow, I, uh, I hear you're pretty good too. <laughs> and at the end, I said, I just wanted to thank you, Al, for, uh, you know, right? how amazing you were to work with and how gracious and how humble. And, and you know, I said, people are upset with, you know, when they meet their heroes, but. You know, you're you're better than people even know. And uh, it's a thrill to be able to work with you. Thank you so much. He goes, Andrew, enough. And I go, Al, I'm just trying. He goes, Andrew. And I said, but Al, I'm just trying. He goes, Andrew, I'll never forget working with you. <laughs> I'm like, fuck. I'm like, see that? That's exactly what I mean. I'm like, you know. Now, that's a fact, and, you know, I get that from Al Pacino, and even if you're Al Pacino, you're not going to see the likes of me anytime fucking soon, and nothing could have prepared you. Right. But at the end, it was a beautiful fucking thing for both of us, so um, nothing but love for Oliver Stone and Al Pacino. I love that. Um, Lawrence Taylor. Now, what was the next part of the question about Alpha Male Insanity? Well, it's there just, was I, much. I, I, you mentioned the testosterone, but I can only imagine with so many alpha male type personalities there that you guys, like, were you hitting the gyms? Were you guys, like, how how much, how fun was it? I was. I don't care about anybody else. Oliver Stone told everybody because I didn't sign my contract fast enough. I had to do a table read with no script. I had to go to Miami with no contract. And then I had to do a football combine with a bunch of guys who were told that, you know, I didn't have the job yet, and if they wanted it, they could take it away from me. And, uh, you know, that was fine with me. I was just drawing a line on the, on the scrimmage and said, you know, anybody who wants to try to fucking be a hero, get a couple cameras and set it up. And uh, 
there was a lot of, oh, he's an actor, he's a fucking pussy and all this shit. And uh, I had to eat him for breakfast every morning. So I didn't mind as the game, you know. And it really set the set the tone of you know how it is in the real in the real game anyway. Right. So uh, it was sure interesting though, and uh, I mean there was a lot of things going on. Jamie Williams at one point had been uh, consulting on the script early on, and he didn't like uh, you know me getting coverage. You know, try to strut like a peacock and get more attention. And what he did, he'd get upset. He took a swig at me one time on the field. Lawrence Taylor, Oliver would say, go rehearse the scene I just wrote with you and Lawrence Taylor, and here's how I want it to go. And I'd be like, got it. <clears throat> and I'd try to talk to Lawrence Taylor, and he'd be like, man, get away from me. I want to talk to you. You ain't the director. Why don't you shut the fuck up, man? You ought to be an actor as much as you want to fucking rehearse. And, you know, it was a fight. It was a fight until... Finally, I explained to him, I am an actor. This is my work. This is my craft. And I'm trying to channel what you have, what makes you fucking special into this scene that was over. And I'm supposed to get you to fucking look great in. You, me, I got to make you look good. You got to make me look good. You don't try. You don't get it. And when Oliver fucking hates us both, and we both fail the fucking movie and Oliver. And uh, he's like, so what do you what do you, what do you mean? What are you trying to do? You like, and I spelled it out. And I went through it. And I gave him the numbers. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, oh that be oh, that's great. He goes, okay, then. He goes, oh, now I understand what the fuck you're trying to do. All right, cool. And after that, you know, he tried to get me to start dipping again. And every time he'd get send somebody for a can of dip, he'd be like, hey, Drew, you know, you want a can of dip? I'm getting some dip. Let me get you a can of dip. And I'd be like, I don't dip anymore. But, you know, like I did just a couple times. Right. Pro Lawrence Taylor at his request. So I let him bring back the old habit, give me a couple cans of Coke and, uh, you know, had a few dips with him, which I wouldn't have done for anybody else. But, you know, he's Lawrence Taylor. And in the end, right, you know, like uh, he respected me and uh, we, have, we have fond memories. <laughs> I love that. Now, one of the obviously, I think a lot of people would recognize you or know you from the remakes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and my, I guess I've always been wondering when you go out for a role like that. Not only do you have the not the baggage, but the history and lore of the another character playing legendary horror icon. But how do you audition for that role? Is it, they, they, do they look at you, be like, "Well, he's big, he's athletic, he can play his character." Like, how do you audition for that character? Well, I straighten Michael Bay out and Marcus to spell out on all that, um, because personally, the question that was later presented how do you fill such big shoes? Is that intimidating? And I'm like, you know, have you seen my fucking feet? Uh, as soon as I cut the toes off of those fucking shoes, I made them work. Right. Fine, Which is a well great enough. way to have, right. Busting out of those old fucking shoes that were left for me because they weren't big enough for my big fucking feet. So that's my answer. And I don't base my performance on anybody's shit. Right. Um, I Michael Bay originally they had thought should always hide his eyes, never see his eyes, and we just interchange the biggest guy we have that day and, and 
they could walk to the fucking same line in the storyboards and our genius uh, fucking filmmaking will just make that, you know, you know, simple. But it would have been no substance to the character, no humanity to the character, and it would have been cheap fucking scares, and it would have been more bullshit. There would have been no real on-camera graphic nature to it. It was destined to fail the way they saw it, and I tried to tell them, Look, just any big fat retard in a fucking mask does not scare the alpha fucking male for one. You know, it comes like a big bumbling, stumbling retard running at the alpha male. And, you know, you'll run a little wind sprint fucking away, scan the ground for a rock the size of a baseball, wait for him to get a little closer. And hit him right between the fucking eyes as he gets too close, like a Nolan Ryan fastball. And then you cut his head off with his own chainsaw and go home. And I said, but I'm the wrong motherfucker to chase you to your death with a wet fucking noodle. I'll beat you to fucking death with a wet noodle. And, you know, if Willie McGinnis or Howie Long had rabies and they were behind the fucking mask... It's now, now it's the apex fucking predator. And now it's contained the outside and then take an angle of pursuit to your fucking target. And, you know, shit that I learned and I applied from being a defensive end. Right. And, um, you know, like, they got rabies too. So it's it's how long I believe it get us. They're not talking to you about nothing. They're just going to run fucking four, five, fucking 40. You know, with their head down and fucking yeah. cut your angle yeah. and to, you know, expediate your fucking death. And they're going to break your bones if they fucking want to the minute they put their fucking hands on you. And, you know, like, that's what you better fucking worry about. You better worry about the, and the eyes show you what's behind the fucking mask. The eyes are the window of the soul. A picture's worth more than fucking a thousand fucking words. Accent speaks louder than fucking words. And, you know, you'll have ignorant, stupid people that, that want to kiss people's asses and hate on me and, you know, remember their old nostalgic bullshit as being something it isn't and how great they say it was in their head, you know, whatever. They want to perpetuate these myths. But, you know, it still doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the fucking facts. Like, you would have no fucking say in it. That makes it scary, you know. When you see his motivation, that makes him human. And when you see his eyes, yep. you know, they'd say, oh, but did you even have any lines in that movie? <laughs> no. But you sure understood exactly what was fucking going on. You know, when David Gilmore plays guitar, and, and even when he's not singing, He's painting the whole fucking picture with emotion and, and humanity and skill. And you see and you hear the picture even when he's not fucking saying anything. Right. Just by his guitar, you know. And it's like your body language is the same way. Your eyes are the same way. And uh, I said to Michael Bay and, and Marcus Nisbell, if you go ahead with the way you think, you're just going to have you're going to be the next guys in line to fail at your fucking uh, at the job. That's the same thing everybody before you've done, and that was their mistake. It 
matters who's in the fucking mask. Yep. It should. The mask doesn't kill people. The mask isn't what's going to come and get you. That's just the gravy on the fucking top. That's just some fucking skin on top of his, of a beast. But just because you put that scary looking skin on top of a fucking cow, it doesn't make it the fucking bull under there. Right. You know, you put that same shit on a bull and you're still not scared of the mask. You're scared of the fucking beast. And uh, I wanted to make him a beast, but a human, you know, who, who had to become a beast because he was treated like a beast. It's the bullying uh, stuff. I look, at, I look at Leatherface the same way, and I think that that's what is responsible for how I brought humanity to it. Uh, and that's why people empathize and sympathize for the character, even though I played the most heinous, brutal, mass murdering, violent graphic serial killer. Right. <laughs> and I held back nothing. No. You know, and I, I did it like a force of nature. Before uh, I get before I let you go, my last question: When you do these conventions, and they require you to have to say you got to dress like uh, Leatherface, would you put that costume nobody, back? Nobody requires. Okay. Nobody requires me to do anything. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was curious if people. I know some uh, actors. That's a that's a trend. That's a trend that I'm joining this year. This uh, I I was all set to 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 yep. do it last year. I will be doing that this year because now, you know, it's it, it's a special thing if, if you only do it every once in a while when you want to for the fans. Would you put and, that on? Um, you go back to your mentality getting back in that character? Hey, look, I mean, use your environment. Like I said, uh, it's one of the rules that I, I base my, my art on uh, and performing on. And, uh, Perform to the to the audience, you know. Direct your performance to to the view of the audience. I'm a, I'm an actor. I'm not Leatherface, but I, I I I play I play that crafty bullshit for all it's worth. And I put on the suit. I take off the suit. I'm fake for a living. I'm not fake in the real world. I'm not Leatherface. But when I put the Leatherface costume on, you know, and maybe crank some Slayer. You know, I can I can still roll my eyes back and fuck with people for some photo ops without necessarily saying I go into character. I never go into character or there'd be bodies everywhere and nobody would make any fucking horror movies anymore. Love it. You know, well, people think, oh, he's method acting and that's their that's their erroneous impression because of what they see. You know, when they get their hair brushed and they get out of their costume, you know, uh, for lunch and get back into it after they go through the works. My shit's on from the beginning of the day to the last fucking person leaves. I'm trying to scrub blue out of my fucking hair and my face. And um, every single day it's like that. So I don't get the luxury of, of taking off my shit, you know, and... Um, 
cleaning up between takes and, and acting like a normal person. I'll, I'll sit on the stairs in the basement and put on my thumbs and wait for camera to adjust and, you know, I'll whistle Looney Tunes just because I'm bored. Yeah. And they'll think, oh, God, look, he's he's he never gets out of that crazy psycho fucking method acting. No, that's how easy it is to, you know, when you when you throw a visual, uh, people interpret it. I'm just comfortable in the costume. I'm comfortable doing my job, yep. you know, even if that sounds strange. I know how to do my job, and my job is not uh, to be that way in real life. It's to miss by that much and to swear like it was real and to make sure nobody gets hurt. And it's all fun until somebody gets hurt. Right. And when somebody does, the show's over for everybody. So you are, it takes you... a lot of professionalism and focus and uh, exacting, you know, knowledge of one's ability and ability to perform, which I'm uh, I'm more like a real deal kind of actor. Like I, I do things that uh, I know I can do because I've tested my limits my whole life. And um you know, physically and mentally, I guess it, it carries over. But, right. you know, if I say I'm going to do something physically, if I sign up for it, it's because I walked through it and, and did the numbers in my head and checked it out and said I could do it because I was sure I could do it, um, which is really important. Like, nobody could have, uh, nobody will be able to put in a performance like that with that character ever again because uh, I wouldn't want anybody but me trying to do what I do. It wouldn't work out. Right. People just can't do it. Whether they think they can or say they can, most people just don't and wait for some instruction. Somebody tell them exactly where to walk and how to stand and where to look and what to think. And you know, I'm lucky. I, I have freedom in my in my craft, and I'm set free by my art. And uh, I love to, to get it out and to uh, to establish it and put it, put another performance in the can. I love it, Andrew. And I do. I'll look forward to doing those photo ops for the fans and putting that back on. I don't do it for fun. I don't do it because people insist that I do it. But when I think it's time, and, and other people have had great success i'm one of the last guys that's jumping on the bandwagon so uh yeah it's time to do that for the people and um you know it'll be a pleasure yeah no it's good and uh that story where you kind of set that woman in montana that super fan a bunch of your autographed pictures and it's kind of cool how you interact with your fans and it's just it's very cool to hear stuff like that that you actually do you actually care? I think so. It's weird. It's weird when some 75 year old chick has a crush on you. Yeah, maybe it's the way you moved his leather face. You never know, man. Get old's rough, man. Let me tell you. Reality becomes comedy. I love it. Well, so, Andrew, you know, lest, lest, lest I ever think I'm too cool. The hot chicks you. that are after me now are 75. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. But, but they're Slayer fans. Anyway. Andrew, this was a blast. Thank you for this. Uh, be safe. Thank you for sharing your stories. And uh, we'll stay in touch. Hey, for sure. It was a breeze. Sorry for the technical issues. And oh, well, uh, John, be well.
Thank you, sir. Be safe. Good questions. Good questions. It was genuinely fun. Good luck with your podcast and be well, Thank everybody you. out Thank there in John's audience. All right. Peace. So I would- Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. happens when we play outside we become healthier both mentally and physically we become more creative and more focused we connect with nature each other and ourselves let's take this outside a new podcast hosted by me marianne iveson an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover i speak to athletes outdoor professionals and scientists about their connection to nature how it affects their performance and everyday life Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.